Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. And joining us today is Russell Muirhead. He's the Robert Clements Professor of Democracy and Politics at Dartmouth and co-author with Nancy L. Rosenblum of the new book, A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. Welcome to Free Thoughts. Thank you. Delighted to be here. What makes a theory a conspiracy theory? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, it, it, you know, we focus a lot on on how those two words always seem to go together, conspiracy and theory. And obviously, you know, the conspiracies that we're really interested in are the ones that allege that people in power in public officials are acting in secret to betray the public interest. There, there are lots of other conspiracies. There might be a corporate conspiracy, a conspiracy of your neighbors. Anybody can conspire. But we're interested in, you know, political conspiracies. And and the theory um, is necessary because conspiracies aren't there on the surface for every they're 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 you know behind the curtain, they're well masked, they're disguised. Um, and it requires something like an act of investigative journalism. It requires people who are attentive to um, anomalies, to to things that don't make sense and who try to make sense of anomalies by constructing a theory, an explanation, something that, um, something that, that describes uh, the world in a way that calls power to account and, uh, and makes the world you know, more understandable. It's interesting, though, because sometimes, as you point out in the book, some conspiracy theories are true, have, have been true, even ones that initially maybe sounded crazy, like MKUltra or the Tuskegee experiments, as, as you point out. And then there are other types of conspiracies, which are so, somewhat mundane in the sense that if conspiracy just means that people get together and plan things, well, that happens all the time. I mean, and, and here at Cato, we get accused of being a part of conspiracies to to change politics. And it is true. There are meetings about that, just like there are on the left. And that, that's a different type of conspiracy. Yeah, I think I think um, you know trying to shape our our politics it does not make a conspiracy. It, it's you know I think for for something to really count as a conspiracy, first of all, it has to be um, it has to include public officials. Uh, so voters who get together to say back a, a new candidate or start a new power, uh, a, a new party, um, are conspiring. You could say um, they might even be acting in secret in their initial organizational meetings, um, maybe because they they feel they need to develop some organizational power before going public. Um, that's not a conspiracy. That that's just people exercising their right to assembly. But when public officials act in secret and, in ways that I think could be reasonably interpreted to betray the common interest, then we have something that counts as you know what we call uh, a conspiracy. And, you know, it, it always starts, I think the conspiracy theorist always starts with something about the world that just doesn't make sense. I mean, it's something like 19 people. How could 19 people plotting, you know, in the sands of Afghanistan with very few resources um, successfully destroy the World Trade Centers and attack the Pentagon? And that the, the cause seems so out of proportion to the world historical effect that it at some level doesn't make sense. It strains credulity to believe that. It strains credulity to believe that a lone gunman could kill the most protected person in the country, the president of the United States. And and so sometimes the conspiracy theorist comes and says, you know, I, I wonder if there was a cause at work that was really a lot more powerful um, than the one we're seeing, than the one that the official account is telling us about. 
And, uh, you know, they try to con- construct a theory that makes better sense of the world. And, and in those cases, I think, you know, I would certainly say the theory isn't convincing, but, but uh, you know, it, it's at least an attempt to, to try to make sense of a world that, that can seem um, incredibly, you know, accidental, where, where really important events can seem to be shaped by almost random non-causes. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a difference, though, you point out in conspiracism, though. So is there a lot of conspiracy theories, as you point, 9-11, Kennedy assassination, tons, tons more. But conspiracism is sort of a new thing. Yeah, we use this word conspiracism because we really want to separate conspiracy and theory. That's because what we're what really we're, we're seeing today in today's politics is not conspiracy theory. There's still conspiracy theories, I should say. They're all, they're, they've always been around. They've been around since the Declaration of Independence, and, and they always will be around. But there's a new, there's something new going on, and it's conspiracy without the theory. It often just takes the form of, you know, sheer allegation, um, without any evidence, without any narrative, without any reference to to factuality. Um, You know, the the great example, I suppose, is Pizzagate, um, which is sort of a concoction. This this how to put it this this fabrication that Hillary Clinton and her campaign chairman are running a child sex trafficking ring out of a, an actually existing pizzeria. Oh, you know, I've been, Chevy, I've been there. It's a, it's a good, it's a good pizzeria. Yeah. yeah it, I mean, the poor owner didn't deserve this. Yes. Um, and, and the, you know, there's all sorts of detail, like their children being tortured in the basement. Well, of course there is no basement. Um, no, there are no facts that people are trying to account for. Nobody's heard children screaming or anything. Um, it's, it's just sheer concoction. So it, it, it alleges a conspiracy, but there is no theory and it, it doesn't begin with something in the world that's hard to make sense of. It doesn't work through some sort of fact. It doesn't construct a theory or an explanation. And it, in the end, leaves the world far more mysterious than, than it was before. Um, so that's conspiracism. That's what I mean by it. We want to call that, you know, it's not, we, we, we don't want to give that the authority that conspiracy theory has because conspiracy theory is like, you know, again, it could be wrong, could be right, could be some mix of the two, but at least it's a theory. And, and, and conspiracism is a way of conveying that we don't want to use this word theory because there is no theory. But it seems like there's not, I mean, there's, there's not a bright line between these two because the, the pizza gators had some sort of arguments or evidence, you know, that there were secret coded words. I think Pizzagate grew out of QAnon. Oh, it's just the reverse, but yeah, you're right. And and I do appreciate that. I think you're right. I mean, we're trying to create um, a certain kind of typology, a, 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 you know, concepts. Uh, there's conspiracy theory, there's conspiracy without the theory. In order to make sense of something that we're seeing in the political world today, uh, we're seeing an awful lot of it. Um, and and I think you're right that it's not um, it's not like these are hard and fast um, forms that come to us in like a periodic table. Um, and everything fits neatly into one or the other. But I will say that it's so, it's so, you know, wild that, um, the propagators of something like Pizzagate do take, undertake efforts to mimic conspiracy theory. And you're right. You know, they, they try to decode, um, emails from Podesta's, you know, hacked account. Um, and, and that's the evidence, you know, those are the facts but of course, the act of decoding is itself a form of fabrication. It's not. It's not a genuine. Um, it's such a. It's such a strained and outlandish and and ultimately, 
um, fictitious sort of interpretation um, that that you know no one who's who's not already in on um, the the uh, the idea could possibly follow it. Well, it seems like this is a product. At least it, the internet has to be a huge part of this. So obviously, we can get to Trump and discuss whether that's a chicken or an egg problem. And, and Trump likes to say a bunch of just non-factual claims and then say, as your book is titled, a lot of people are saying to, to validate them. But the internet can produce great knowledge, but it can also produce, connect people together to sort of and feel like they have a community uh, when they're creating these theories, which again, we can make you know, the direction of conspiracy theory and conspiracism might be just how outlandish it is. QAnon is some sort of theory. It's pretty, I mean, I've, I've not really delved into the depths of the QAnon you know, mythos, but it is some sort of theory. And it I seems think awfully it, elaborate. Yeah. Least. And it's based in some amount of distrust of power, maybe on the back end, uh, at least ideologically, that they expect government officials to do this kind of stuff. So maybe that's why some limited <laughs> government comes in. But is, is it really just sort of like the internet bringing this stuff out? Yeah, I mean, so first on the internet, I, I think that's just an astute observation. It's really, that's the real um, facilitating cause of the new conspiracism. I mean, it just, you know, it's it's allows, it's allowed anybody to say anything to everybody in the whole world for free. And, you know, you or I right now can communicate to, uh, you know, limitless number of people. Uh, just make things up. No yeah. Cost. yeah we, and, it used to be, I mean, when I was just not that long ago, you know, when I was in, in, say, graduate school, if I wanted to communicate to the community of political scientists, and there are about 10,000 political scientists in the country, it would have cost me thousands of dollars to get access to a copy machine, copy the thing, fold it, tape it, address it, and then get all the stamps, which would have been very costly, mail everything out. Um, it used to be very difficult to communicate to thousands, tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people, and editors and producers acted as gatekeepers and, and decided, you know, what kinds of, of things were worthy of being disseminated and broadcast because square inches, uh, column inches in a newspaper are very expensive. Um, you know, every minute of radio broadcast time or TV broadcast time was incredibly expensive. So there, there were gatekeepers. And what the Internet has done is eradicated that gatekeeping function. And, and that's, that's allowed, um, it's allowed notions to, to find a, a, an audience that I think never would have been aired previously. And, and it's a, I sometimes think of it as a kind of a Gutenberg effect. You know, one, once the Bible could be printed, it could then be translated into vernacular languages. And once that happened, the authority of priests, um, was, was under attack. And, uh, you know, that led to three centuries of political instability <laughs> and, and a new regime. But um, it was probably a good thing. I, you know, listen, it, it's not, I really, I, I want to be hopeful about this technological development too. Um, but I think, you know, no, no technological change is entirely good or entirely bad. And, and one of the, um, you know, one of the things that's produced by this great transformation, this revolution in communications technology is the eradication of gatekeepers. And that's resulted in a lot of misinformation and a new kind of conspiracism that are, you know, uh, creating challenges for for political life. I wonder too if there's one of the effects of not just that we don't have gatekeepers, that kind of anyone can access these distribution channels that that used to be closed off or at least expensive to get into, um, but also that the format of them, so the, the way that like – so the difference between a tweet and 
you know, getting an op-ed published in the Washington Post um, that length seems to play a role. That these things, you know, our communications have become shorter, and and that you've gotten it, it leads to something like kind of a flattening of the difference between gossip and news. That you know, so that the Washington Post has a Twitter account and it's tweeting out things, but we all know that like everyone, the only thing anyone ever looks at is the headline, and then yeah. the comment. Yeah. Um, and so the headline is just a dozen words or whatever it is, um, which is the same as any other tweet you see out there. And so it ends up conceptually like some random tweet that you see from someone asserting that there's a pedophile ring in the basement of Comet Pizza looks from a formatting standpoint, from you know a, a like depth of content standpoint, indistinguishable from someone all else tweeting a thing about you know like a, a 12 word thing about the content of the Mueller report with the link to the Washington Post um, and so the and so that the habitual well it's you, I mean as you call it like later on in the book you like it's kind of true enough um, that you just hit that retweet button um, and so we've been kind of conditioned to not just access information from far more people than before but treat these information sources as as quite similar yeah I think that's a that's a good observation. All, all you know, things sort of arguments and non-arguments look the same when they take a hundred and forty-character form, and uh, and something like rigged exclamation point, you know, substitutes for a theory or for an argument. That's that's the shorthand allegation that the election was rigged, that Democratic officials conspired to defraud Trump um, of votes that uh, you know were were were. Uh, um, an election that he won. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's another weird thing is that, you know, used to be social scientists used to say that, you know, conspiracy theory was really the, the, the mental framework of losers in politics, people who are left out, marginalized, excluded from power. It's how they made sense of, of a power they couldn't control and therefore couldn't call to account and couldn't trust. And yeah, it's totally plausible theory, isn't it? Now we've got someone at the center of power who's, who's, um, you know, more drawn to conspiratorial understandings than perhaps anybody else in American politics, the president himself, who says the election that that elected him was rigged. It's a it's a very strange phenomenon. But yeah, I do want to say that I, I think that's a really good point that the form of communication in in the new technology kind of flattens things out and makes arguments the same look the same as non arguments. I just published an op ed a couple weeks ago. Getting it past the editor took the better part of a week. The editor kept coming back to me, you know, could I substantiate this? Could I substantiate that? Could I provide a source for this? Where exactly did this quote come from? And and we went back and forth and back and I revised it and revised it and revised it. I pulled stuff out that I couldn't sufficiently source to the editor's, you know, satisfaction. And by the time that 750 words got published, you know, it, there, there was a certain kind of um, reliability to it. And I really came to, you know, admire and respect this this particular editor who she was just so smart and so demanding, and um, and and I think you know there's another kind of form which is that that sort of short piece, 700 words with a lot of it, links embedded in it, so that you can see the sources and and click on them that the new communications technology makes possible. But but increasingly it's that you know it's that one word, 12 word tweet. That's mm-hmm. the form all political communications takes. You're right. Well, you mentioned uh, the sort of the fact that these winners, or at least Donald Trump, is you know still 
bringing up conspiracy theories and this idea of trust. And I, and I think that that's a sort of good segue into the question of the partisanship differences, if there are any in the Republican versus Democrats on who's more prone to this. And I think it's interesting. It's just, I, I don't think you're completely off base by saying the Republicans seem to be doing this more. Obviously, Pizzagate and some of these elaborate conspiracy theories, birtherism came from Republicans. And, it, and I think one of the important things to understand about conservatives is that since I would say the early 80s, it's sort of a persecution movement that that the public schools, the universities, Hollywood, uh, and and mainstream media are all against them, and you that you grow into right wing talk radio, and you grow into Fox News, and 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 now websites like Breitbart, they're all telling you truths that the mainstream media won't tell you. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that on some of those things, I think that the conservatives were correct, at least especially in like the 70s and 80s. It was very hard to get a conservative view into some of these publications. But maybe perhaps now that's metastasized to a to a, to a dangerous level. Yeah. I, and listen, I, I think there's sometimes very good reason to feel uh, persecuted or, or feel like you're not being tolerated, especially for conservatives to feel this way. Look, I work at a university. Uh, <laughs> You know, it, it, it's become apparent to me in all sorts of ways that conservative arguments and conservative understandings are are disadvantaged and sometimes persecuted Absolutely. in this environment. Yeah. So so I, I think that that could be, you know, I totally understand that. Um, I really I, I think it's true that the, this new conspiracy the conspiracy without the theory is coming from corners of the extreme right. And and to some extent, it augments. Um, and strengthens certain aspects of conservatism. But I don't want to call it a Republican uh, movement or or even a particularly conservative one because it's going to undermine the conservative cause of the Republican Party. In, in the end, it will undermine any coherent purpose that we might want government to have. And, and there are so many Republicans, I mean, the vast, well, it's just, you know, almost all Republicans don't give themselves over to this. If I think about something like birtherism, um, I mean, John McCain, when he was running against um, Barack Obama, explicitly repudiated this and did so to his own supporters in his own town hall meetings. Um, you know, it, it, it just wasn't the case that it was coming from the Republican Party as such. It was actually coming from Donald Trump at the time <laughs> on, on the margins, you might say, of political life. Um, I do think, though, that you're right. It, it's not so much the new conspiracism so far hasn't really come from the left, even from the extreme left. Um, but look, it's a very satisfying rhetorical and political tool. I think that there's every reason to suppose that in the next few years it will start to come from the left as well. And uh, and I, it's going at that point, we're I think we're going to need public officials from both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, people who have some sort of tethers into these communities of belief, uh, into these activist communities who have some sort of trust. We're going to need these officials to stand up to this. Or it's going to exert a really corrosive effect on our politics from all sides. So that's just to clarify. I don't. I really would not want to say this is, a, you know, a conservative phenomenon or a Republican Party phenomenon. It's a little bit. It's more allied with that right now, but but it's not allied with that, you know, by definition. I I was struck by something that you said in the book about kind of the content of, or I guess the lack of content in these conspiracy assertions, the the new conspiracism, um, where you you argue that basically it's it's kind of nihilistic that that these people, so Trump being the, you know, 
archetypal example of it, but but on down from him are asserting a just general kind of anti-government position without a theory of like what what should replace it. Like they, yeah, they don't have like a normative political theory. Um, yeah. And and two things about that I was I guess skeptical of and so I was curious to get your reaction to. Um, the first was the anti-government content of it um, because it doesn't – Trump and Trumpists don't strike me as anti-government at all. I mean Trump is Trump is an incredibly big government guy and wants the government to do all sorts of things and his people his, – his, you know, Trumpists themselves want the government to restrict immigration, restrict trade, um, give you – know, they constantly want it to you know, exercise its law enforcement powers against enemies and and so on um, and and give them welfare benefits and you know prop them up and have transfer payments and all that like so they don't look they don't look like small government in the way that I look small government uh, and then at the same time it seems like they do have a normative political theory namely it's kind of nationalist uh, populist with a strong man. Like what they want is they want to tear down the the governing institutions that they see as having failed them or being corrupt or I guess being pedophiles or whatever it is and replace them with just invested power in Donald Trump and whoever succeeds him, which is – I mean I think is an abhorrent theory of government but it's it certainly is a theory of government. Yeah, that's. I guess I I, I sort of um, accept that pushback. I mean, that sounds really interesting. It, it, when we say that you know the conspiracy without the theory also lacks a kind of political theory and understanding of what government would look like if it were purged of this kind of conspiratorial corruption, what we have in mind we have two kind of historical precedents in mind. One is the the American Revolution, which is based in a conspiracy theory about how you know Britain powers in, in Great Britain were conspiring to undermine liberty. It, for instance, um, in 1774, people in Massachusetts saw the Quebec Act, which was passed by Parliament as a way really just to organize this Francophone population in British North America. They saw that as an explicit part of a design aimed at extinguishing self-government and political liberty in Massachusetts. And, uh, and, and, and they had an idea of what government would look like. Um, you know, annual elections, uh, representatives that were that were tethered very closely to the people. You know the story. Now, the second precedent that we have in mind are, is the progressive era, where the progressives had an understanding of conspiracy. They thought the government had been captured by corporate interests, that it was acting to you know, betray the people. But they had very concrete understandings of what the government, what kinds of policies they, they felt that a, um, a cleansed or reformed government would, would undertake. Um, and and in moving from a from a government that 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 can pursue policies effectively to a government of a you know run by a strong man that's susceptible to the caprice and the whim of the strong man, um, I, I you know you're right there there's some sort of politics to government by you know populist strong man authoritarianism, um, capricious authoritarianism. What there isn't though is is a government that can coherently pursue certain kinds of policy goals. Um, and it, it, for instance, to do that, the government need, needs access to elemental non-political facts, facts like the unemployment rate. And you know, if you think that the Bureau of Labor Statistics is um, really a conspiracy designed to make Democrats look good and Republicans look bad, as Trump did when he was a candidate, 
Now that, he seems to be a fan of it, that the numbers look good, though. Yeah. So, so well, you know, you have to that for 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 a government to operate across both conservative and liberal Republican and Democratic administrations, there has to be some sort of supply of elemental facts that both kinds of regimes can use to pursue either liberal or conservative policies. So insofar as Trump's conspiracism undermines confidence in something like the Bureau of Labor Statistics and undermines you know, public confidence in the very idea of an unemployment rate, and people just assume that it's something that's always manipulated, then we're going to eventually come to a time where it's you know, impossible for any sort of government, um, libertarian or socialist, to to pursue a, a, a policy effectively. And, and I guess that's why we, we, we see in this conspiracism, not so much in ethno-nationalism or conservatism or, or free market conservatism or any other political theory, but in this conspiracism, we see a threat to you know, all sorts of policymaking. That's the, the the threat that you kind of touched on there, but I think you explicitly point out that there are two – you identify two main targets of conspiracism. You call them foundations of democracy and, and knowledge-producing institutions. So can you elaborate a little bit on one, what those two things are? Yeah. I mean the two things that, that we really see as vulnerable um, to this force, uh, uh, the conspiracy without the theory, are one, as you said, knowledge-producing institutions. We have in mind – you know, these agencies, these sort of lonely agencies staffed by experts like the Bureau of Labor Statistics, like the National Weather Service. Um, and and they're increasingly the objects of conspiracist attacks. The National Weather Service is doctoring climate data so as to, in, you know, exaggerate the threat posed by global warming. Um, and and, and we, we're very concerned that once um, knowledge producing institutions like the media like these sorts of expert-oriented government agencies, like the university, um, like even courts, which you could think of as a knowledge-producing institution about guilt and innocence, when, when, when these are entirely viewed as housing conspiracies, um, as housing elites that are acting against the common interest, um, then all of the facts generated by these sorts of institutions will lose their will lose their authority, and we will be in you know then we'll be delivered to a kind of fact-free politics where strong men never have to suffer the inconvenience of encountering an unfriendly fact, you know, like a, a runaway inflation rate, because everything can always be denied. Well, you you brought up courts and 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 you're listing kind of the institutions, and that's. That's uh, one of the things I do here at Cato is is work on our Supreme Court program, and in my experience, the idea that the courts are a bunch of conspiracies is coming mostly from the left currently. Uh, that that we have uh, John Roberts per bought off by the Federal Society, and Cato might be thrown in there, and Heritage, and there's all a cabal there, and we're working to manipulate democracy and make sure that only oligarchs can rule. And you read people like Jane Mayer, and it sounds like we all get together, put on our druid robes to Ronald Reagan, sacrifice a child, and then try to figure out how to affect the judiciary. I mean, I mean, that's the way I read, read her. And I mean, it basically, it's a little bit short of that, but not too much. And that that seems to me the kind of conspiracism that comes from from the left. Yeah, maybe that's where maybe that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe that's where it will come from when it comes from the left. And the other place I think it's going to come from when it comes from the left is, I mean, the other object of, of sort of new conspiracism when it comes from the left will be certain kinds of financial institutions. And maybe the links are putative links between those institutions and other agencies of government like the Treasury. 
Um, I'm surprised in a way there wasn't more of that in 2008, 2009. Well, you saw some of it with Occupy Wall Street, where some of the claims about financial institutions could get pretty close to conspiracy. Yeah, and and you might you might see more of that sort of just you know radical sheer allegation conspiracism. Um, I, I think we also saw it a, a fair amount during the the run up, like I mean during the Mueller investigation. Um, I mean, granted, there was all sorts of it coming from the the Trumpist right, but there was a lot of the kind of just asking questions approach to conspiracism from the left of like. You know, I'm not saying it's necessarily the case, but it does seem like Trump is probably a paid Russian agent, or you know, they have blackmail on him, or like that. The the kind of the steel the, the worst features of like MSNBC's coverage um, leading yeah. up to it seemed to seem to fit a lot of what you're describing in not just being kind of conspiracy theory stuff, but in just being these kind of assertions that were like, well, you know. I wouldn't be surprised if this were the case. Right, right. And that's exactly the the rhetorical move that we want people to be on guard against. It's, it's You mentioned this true enoughness, but, but there's this way of lowering the bar that we ask people to submit themselves to in order to believe something. And, and you can lower the bar by saying, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying it might be true. <laughs> um, I'm not saying it's true that... Um, you know, the clash between white nationalists and um, protesters in Charlottesville was organized by the Democratic Party. But I am saying it's plausible. That's something that a congressman said yeah. um, a couple of years ago. And and what that, you know, once we leave the r world, when, once speakers kind of invite us to stop asking what's true and false and, and to substitute for that, you know, whatever we can imagine might in some plausible world perhaps be true, then um, we'll, we, we can believe anything. And, and so, yeah, that thing, I'm not saying it's true, but I wouldn't be surprised. When, when, when we hear that, what Nancy and I would really like, um, you know, listeners, citizens, reporters to be on guard for this, um, because this is the mechanism that, uh, that just displaces the the importance of truth and falsity in, in politics. And, and I, I, that's one reason I liked your book. Uh, um, but I, I, may, I mean, I... As a libertarian, which, a, which is a mix of a little bit left and a little bit right, I you know I, I think Aaron I's questions are so we because we see more of it on the left maybe than you do. And the one that struck me, and I, I and maybe you can make a distinction here, but you bring up Kellyanne Conway's famous alternative facts formulation, but we also have Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's famous uh, people being more concerned about people being precisely factually and semantically correct than about being morally right. Is that the kind of thing too that that might be? Uh, the, the sort of not caring about facts it's true enough or a lot of that this is this seems to be true and so you're if you're harping on the fact that I'm incorrect about how much this costs you're you're really missing the point or would you make a distinction there you know I well it, that may or may not be an instance of this precise thing conspiracism but it is an instance of the effort by people in power to displace the question of what's true and what's not true and, and replace it with something else that's much more moldable by those in power and I, I think that's a very, very corrosive thing um, in, in democratic politics. And, and, uh, and I agree that anybody in power is going to be tempted, anyone who wants power is going to be tempted to take control of facts by obliterating them, you know, by rendering them um, subservient to their own purposes. And, uh, you know, one, once the, the problem with that, though, it can be very useful to power seekers. Of course, the problem with that is that 
uh, a political world in which no one has any confidence in anything like a fact is a political world in which we can't make effective decisions about anything. How do so, we? So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. That's very corrosive. How do we then um, distinguish this kind of just brushing aside facts or trying to, you know, just undercut the institutions versus disagreement? Like that you could say, you know, you, you could make, say, a plausible argument that the Bureau of Labor Statistics is maybe misreading, you know, it, it's measuring in a way that doesn't get to the right answers or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and and that and so the the end result is, you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers aren't as good as they say they are. Um, whereas the conspiracist is basically saying the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers aren't as good as they say they are. And how do we and we being just like ordinary citizens watching people arguing about politics on TV or in newspapers or listening to politicians talk, how do we begin to distinguish the conspiracist rejection of a set of facts versus the like I, principled, dis, analysis. The principled analysis disagreement with a set of facts? Yeah, and, and, and it might even be that you know, you do think that there's something's biased. There could be bias in sure. the presentation of facts or in the construction of facts. Um, that that too is a little bit different from a conspiracy that's just making things up. I mean, Donald Trump said that the Bureau of Labor Statistics was way off on unemployment when it was said the unemployment rate was you know six percent. He said it was really forty percent, and <laughs> so so he didn't he wasn't saying that you know the way the unemployment rate is calculated is misleading. And and uh, and maybe even misleading in a way that benefits, you know, Democrats. It could be biased and misleading. There could be, you know, there's lots of room for I think um, arguments about about how it is that we construct our facts, technically speaking, um, and how it is that we that we per portray them. And 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 uh, and we don't think that um, you know that that facts just come to us in a pure and un unadulterated form and deserve our complete trust. There's a lot to argue about. Um, but, but that's different from saying that, that, that the enterprise in which people are trying in good faith to come up with facts that can be used as again, to, can be used to make decisions of different sorts for different kinds of political purposes, that that whole enterprise has been corrupted by a conspiracy that's systematically defrauding the public from top to bottom. Do you think that, uh, it's, this is a strange way to ask this question, but I think you, you brought up universities. Is it? Is it fair to ask, or can we expect conservatives to to really trust the say universities and mainstream media? I, I mean, I always try and ask uh, people on the left. I say, if if it was the case that the New York Times was ninety percent conservative in staff, and that universities were ninety percent conservative in their faculty members. Uh, would you trust everything that came out of these institutions? Uh, and and uh, for conservatives, and you no, know, not even necessarily conspiracists. You know, the idea that saying that this peer-reviewed publication says this um, doesn't mean as much uh, just by saying it comes from a university. And you you brought that up too that it's it's hard to sell and publish conservative ideas in many many academic fields, which is one reason why many people ran to think tanks and stuff like that. So can we can we expect and maybe we have try to reform some of these or ask media, some media companies to maybe try and be less biased or universities to try and be less biased like John Haidt is doing, for example, with Heterodox Academy? Yeah, and I, I think um... – in a way, what Nancy and I are asking for is not trust. We're not we're not asking people to just trust whatever comes out. Certainly, of the university, um, I can say 
uh, we academics tend not to trust each other. We, we pick apart each other's arguments with incredible zeal. Um, we think that skepticism and a lot of skepticism is, is warranted. And we really hope for, for citizens who are vigilant in their skepticism, you know, who ask questions and ask very plain questions about what the facts they've been given and, and the arguments and, and accusations that they, that, that they have to entertain. We, you know, in a way, the new conspiracism relies on an absence of skepticism and, and on an overabundance of trust. Um, anyone who asks the first few questions about Pizzagate is going to come out thinking that there's probably not a lot to support that theory um, or that, that story. So I, I think you know, skepticism with respect to um, certain kinds of, of, of arguments that come out of the university and come out of corners of the university in which conservatism and conservatives are very, very scarce is abundantly warranted. And, uh, and, you know, you might take a book or an article or even a whole stream of research and, and, and reveal in an, an incredibly insightful way, um, how bias has infected that stream of research or article, that book. And, uh, and that's an important function. Um, so, so I don't think, you know, we, we, we believe that knowledge producing institutions should be blindly trusted. Um, and I, I don't expect, you know, economists to, to trust, um, blindly. Um, every statistic comes out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, there, there are very many different ways of calculating the poverty rate and, or calculating, um, e even inequality. And comparing, you know, the bundle of goods people have today to the bundle of goods they had in 1950, and th those are very complicated things, and they can be worked out in ways that are that affect are effectually biased. So it's very, very important, you know, the enterprise of uncovering bias. But the enterprise of uncovering bias is one thing, um, and and dismissing the entire institution and the entire practice. Um, let's say the scientific method by which we try to ascertain facts, dismissing that in a comprehensive way as incorrigibly corrupted by a conspiracist cabal does not get us to a better set of facts that are less biased. It gets us to a place where there can be no facts, where all that's left is power. So, so what you're, you know, suggesting is warranted a certain kind of skepticism toward institutions that are, you know, visibly dominated by one side of the political spectrum, I would endorse, I would heartily endorse. And I think that same skepticism brought to conspiracist allegations will, will really defend us from some of the more corrosive aspects of this. As far as that defense goes, I'm curious about the, the size of this threat because obviously like so we have the, the conspiracist in chief right now who is tweeting yeah. out to his however many millions of followers and so it looks like it looks like a big deal cuz the president is doing it um and and his followers are doing it a lot but at the same time like just just because it's visible doesn't mean it's necessarily a significant threat um and and it doesn't seem to be i mean we have the president is wildly unpopular he over his years in office has been tremendously ineffective at instituting basically any of the policies that he or his um, his constituents wanted with a, a couple of really tragic exceptions. He can't tell the time without telling a lie. Um, and and it doesn't seem like he is – I mean given his popularity rating has you know stayed at the basically the level it's been since he got in. It doesn't seem like more and more people are coming to accept the kinds of stuff. Like most people think he's a liar and – 
and most people, his term, however long it lasts, will end with those same people thinking he's just obviously a liar and spewing nonsense. Um, and so if that's the case, then it seems like you know, once he disappears from the scene um, and maybe takes the Republican Party down with him, but, you know, once he disappears from the scene, th this kind of thing will go away. Like it just seems like this is – this conspiracism is, you know, there's there's a certain portion of the population that's really into it, but most of us aren't and most of us immediately see it for what it is and and then further because it doesn't – it lacks the theory. Like you can – you know, a good conspiracy theory can be – convincing like i remember watching there's a terrific documentary about yeah. the um about the shining and all of the like interpretations that it's really about faking the moon landing and then yeah. it's really about native <laughs> americans and each one you watch it going in and you're and you come out at the end of like the 15 minutes here you're like wait maybe there's some truth to that right <laughs> like conspiracy theories can be convincing but the conspiracism of just rigged or you know 20 million illegals voted in new hampshire um no one's because it's like you know it's being asserted without any evidence. It's it doesn't easily have dismissed. Legs. It doesn't have legs. So is it is it really a significant threat, or is it just kind of a visible, like a really visible thing? And you know, I, I certainly hope that that more sanguine account, which says that it's not a really big threat, turns out to be true. Um, and and I think there's good reason to suppose it might. I you know, want to believe in the common sense of, of all, of all citizens and that common sense will prevail. Um, Thomas Paine invokes common sense in the revolutionary moment. And, uh, and the idea that, you know, that the, the people don't, are not going to be easily duped, um, is one that's, I think, proven itself over time. So let's hope that's right. Uh, Nancy and I certainly, you know, want to weaken this, this threat, one by calling out people's attention to this to the way that true enough works to dismiss or displace questions of truth and falsity from politics and and second we want we want people to realize that you know the the authority and the power of conspiracy theory should not be conferred on the kinds of conspiratorial allegations that we hear in politics today that said you know there's a certain kind of staying power that these allegations have Garden variety political misinformation, you know, spread on Facebook or, or on a fake website, uh, often just disappears in one news cycle. But these conspiratorial allegations stick, and um, they have an incredible staying power. Even something like Pizzagate ends up morphing into QAnon, and the QAnon is the conspiracy that theory that says um, the Mueller investigation was a big distraction from the real plan, which was Trump's plan to arrest Soros and Obama and Hillary Clinton, um, who all of whom were involved in torturing children and that these secret indictments were being written and they were all going to be you know, arrested on the same day. So, you know, there's a lot, they, they have, it has incredible staying power and we really worry about this one feature of it, that it, dis, it describes the political opposition as not just, um, I don't know, misfounded, mistaken, stupid, misguided. It, it describes it as criminal and as unworthy of being tolerated. An absolute, you know, just foundation of democracy is the view of the legitimate opposition, the view that your opponents in electoral politics deserve to be tolerated and are fair players in the democratic game. You know, they're, they're legitimate participants in the democratic game. And, you know, the more traditional ancient understanding is that your opponents themselves are conspiring 
to destroy the state and to undermine the country and that they you know deserve to be killed or at least imprisoned um and and uh you know, that traditional understanding, look, it, it's even in the 1790s when John Adams is president, they passed the Alien and Sedition Acts, make it a crime to criticize the government. I think a member of Congress got put in jail on the Alien yeah, Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Matthew and, Lyon, a personal hero of mine. <laughs> so we're really worried about, a, you know, a, a force that describes the opposition, not just as, you know, you can call it stupid, you can call it mistaken. You can say, if you're a conservative of some, you know, a, a variety of different sorts, you might think that that liberals and Democrats are grotesquely wrong, profoundly wrong, and as such, that if they ruled the country, the country would really suffer as a consequence. And yet, you might also say they deserve to be tolerated and, and argued with, and we have to beat them the fair way. That's what I would say, I guess, about Donald Trump. That, you know, I don't want him impeached. I don't want him investigated and imprisoned. I want to beat him in an election, the, the way you know democracy gives us a chance to do. And, and this conspiracism, say, you know, the Pizzagate conspiracy, uh, the rigged election conspiracy, QAnon, it describes opponents as illegitimate participants in democratic life. It it exaggerates, um, let's say, the defects of somebody like Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. Um, def- what, what you might think of as defects if you don't agree with them. It exaggerates them into pure evil. These are people who who, who torture and abuse children. And I mean, they're worse than Nazis. And, and that's why the right you know, response to them is not just to defeat them, it's to lock them up. And, and, and so to the extent that even a large minority of citizens come to be persuaded of this view uh, of seeing your opponents in politics, well, we, I'm worried. Count me as worried. But, but that, that, that's why we wrote the book. We, we want to weaken this and we want to defeat it before it accumulates any power. Thanks for listening. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.